This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Chavisa Woods, author of the albino album Love Does Not Make Me Gentle or Kind, and the short story collection Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country and Other Stories. Her work focuses on rural America, particularly people living on the fringes of society, whether they are drug addicts, poor, gay, or witnesses to UFOs. The backdrop in many of her stories, in Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country, reveals an America at war and the presence of death and conflict. We began the interview discussing what goth means to her. I was more hearkening to the the 90s sort of goth um, aesthetic with this book um, and the 80s and even contemporary goth. Goth is basically, and it's everything. Um, people are asking me, oh, is it cold wave? Are you doing industrial? Is it like romantic goth? I'm talking about all the kids who dress goth in all of the different forms that that manifests itself in from the probably the 60s to now. But what does it mean as an identity? Does it mean you dress in black? What does it mean on a deeper level? In this book, the what the main character in the title story dresses in black and is very aware of the death that is very present in her culture, and that would be like American culture and um, in militarism. So she's really dressing black and dressing goth. I think goth is really about death. It's about having a really close um, connection with death. And it's also sort of about feeling out of place. I mean, goth people are obviously alive, (laughs) so they feel sort of out of place in life in general. Goth in the country is specifically about being out of place. And goth would be, for me, having a close relationship with death and acknowledging tragedies that are occurring that maybe a lot of the people around you don't want to acknowledge. There are things that come up in a lot of the stories, and I think they were interesting. You know, when you're a writer, and I would think about the placement of objects in your story. These are some of the things that stuck out in the story, and it's a little bit of a long list. Um, But Mm -hmm. I just want you to comment on it. Whippets, cigarettes, exorcisms, bell towers, weird haircuts, homosexuality, guns and roses, cousins, haunted places, UFOs, self-mutilation, Southern Baptists, the Bible, dead things, pentacles, and the Air Force. So those were all the things I wrote down. Like if you were doing a set piece, like all of the set you would put in. To me, these felt like icons in the story. And Mm -hmm. a lot of them were in a lot of the stories. And I'm just wondering if any of them resonate more with you or um, thematically resonated throughout the stories for you. Yeah, I really love the list you just gave. Um, That could be like a kind of gorgeous tableau or a really nice altar if you had sort of those things or images representing those things all piled together. For parts of this book, I really did feel like I was painting rather than writing at times, um, especially with the title story, because I just wanted to evoke a feeling through a certain aesthetic. And I think the combination of all the things you just named really do summarize sort of the feeling that the book gives you, like its personality, its energy. Um, I couldn't pick one over the other because I think they're all intertwined within the book over and over again. One of the things I loved was just the presence of cousins. I think about when you when you're saying things to do when you're goth in the country, it makes me think a a little bit, obviously, of boredom and people who can't get out. And if families have been there a long time, of course, there's going to be cousins. 
Oh my God, there's so many cousins. Well, first of all, I'm the oldest of five children. Um, I was primarily raised by my grandparents who, and my grandma was the oldest of seven. My mom is the oldest of nine, I believe. I mean, so the, it's, it's huge families. And then my dad my, is a little bit particular because he just has one brother who's my uncle, but then he has four kids and they were raised partly with me at times. So sometimes in the house it would be like, I'm the oldest of five kids, two sisters from my dad, two from my mom, four little cousins also in my house who are like my siblings. And then they all have friends over and they're, they call their friends their cousins, even if they're not, or maybe they're their third cousins related by marriage. It gets a little crazy in the country because everyone's your second or third cousin. Can you tell me a little bit more about your upbringing and what it felt like for you? Because you seem like a very individualistic person. I was raised split kind of three ways. Um, my parents had me pretty young, so I lived with my grandparents most of my life. But my father was also a really big part of my life. And then my mother also had partial custody of me and I lived with her. My grandparents were strict Southern Baptists um, and very loving people and like took, you know, were terrific parents to me. They took me to Disney World. They gave me all the toys in the world. Terrific parents, but they were also very strict Southern Baptists, very religious people. And I was very religious. And that was my home. Then my dad was involved in my life and he would he was a punk rock musician and an atheist and he would take me out to punk rock concerts and give me like Laurie Anderson CDs and Patti Smith CDs and argue with his mom, my grandma who was raising me or who I was living with. And then my mom was a very different type of person from a very poor family who was, you know, couch surfing and struggling with homeless a lot of my life and also was a bit of a partier and an artist and a painter so it was like three very different worlds, um, like, you know, th four parents raising me through three different homes that I was kind of going in between as a child. So that was that I think that gave me a kind of a unique perspective. Um, I was able to see a lot of different types of people who live in one area that's usually thought of as homogenous, but it's really not. There are lots of different classes and types of people even there, even in this very poor rural area. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Chavisa Woods, author of the short story collection, Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country, and Other Stories. One of the things I noticed in your stories was the presence of ghosts, whether they were a real ghost, imagined ghosts, or the things that haunt us. Mm -hmm. You have that very literally in one of the stories where these two, I believe they're 12-year-old girls, meet um, someone named Tanya who may be a zombie. They hang out with her at the graveyard, and she is the only person in their life that talks to them as if they were adults. And she really was an awakening presence in their life. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this story and then that idea of ghosts and the things that maybe haunt us literally and figuratively. Well, there are a lot of ghosts, real and imagined in the book. Um, in Zombie, though, Tanya is not imaginary and she is not a ghost because she is still alive. Um, but she is a person who is only halfway there, um, the way that so many like drug addicts are. So this is a woman, a homeless woman who's addicted to meth and who has decided to disappear from most of, you know, most interactions with regular society. When I was writing Tanya, I just wanted to, I wanted to take the, this kind of tradition of coming of age stories of like the Boo Radley character, for instance, or, um, in the film now and then, 
the, you know, stoned Vietnam vet that the little girls meet. These kind of adults who interact with children slightly age inappropriately, who may be outcast from their own peers, from their other adult peers, because of some addiction or eccentricity, but who ultimately impart some um, helpful knowledge, some something, some useful information to the children. And I just wanted to take that and I wanted to twist it really hard. And I wanted to um, talk about more of what's really going on right now in very poor areas or working class areas, people, places where people are struggling with homelessness and addiction, you know, the meth riddled like Midwest during the recession. Um, so this is a really strange coming of age story. The woman is very age inappropriate with the girls. She is like a peer cause she's emotionally stunted. She's addicted to meth. It's not like she's drinking too much beer or smoking pot. Sometimes she's addicted to meth. And the lesson they learn at the end, I think is a lesson that our society is trying to teach kids to ultimately look away. And it's a very bleak lesson. The other presence, you know, going through these stories, and obviously you're thinking about the 90s, was what was going on um, with wars, the 90s and the aughts, what was going on with the military and the militaries in the background. Um, I, I assume, well, some of these towns, it seemed like there was a military base near there. But that was also, I thought, a prominent thought in your head. Yeah, I really, um, when you're talking about a rural area and a working class area or a poor area, it's, I would find it impossible not to include the military. Um, the military comes and recruits starting in grade school in most of these areas. And it's very normal. I think, you know, if I said that to someone from the area, they might be like, oh, they do. Yeah. Like they wouldn't necessarily think about it as being a bad thing or a strange thing. Um, but I, I think it is very intense. Um, I, I, I personally think it's inappropriate, but I also realize that large portions of our military come from these places and come from these people. And these people are being sent back home every few years from fighting overseas still because the war has you know stopped ending. So that's where most of our military people, I believe, or a large portion of them are coming from. Well, this this idea of twisting things, you said earlier about taking a stereotype and pushing it really far or her twisted um, take and and looking at that. And one of the things you do is you have some some elements of magic or just supernatural in your stories. So in the first story, there's kind of a green orb in the country um, out in kind of a, a rural area where they see this orb and they don't know if it's a UFO or anything like that. But up until that point, the story is totally realistic. And all of a sudden it does kind of twist. And I'm just wondering about your inclination to to do that and your interest in putting the supernatural into what you think are very realistic scenes. Right. Yeah. Um, at the beginning of that story, you know, it starts really initially with them, the brothers talking about seeing these green orbs floating in the woods. And the narrator notes that a couch is so moldy and old that it could possibly start floating around and talking and become like a life form. Um, and I think that's all read at first as if it's some kind of joke or a metaphor or as if the brothers, you know, they're high, maybe they're crazy and they're seeing these things that aren't there. Maybe, you know, the narrator's mocking the country folk who see UFOs everywhere. 
Um, and, you know, again, and this is a lot of spoilers, it turns out to be very real. My inclination to do that is I think when I was growing up in the country, you know, we did see UFOs. And by that, I mean, unidentified flying ob- objects, not necessarily flying saucers. And there were a lot of haunted places and you would go there and have very weird experiences. And it, it was always kind of at the edge of reality and fantasy because a lot of adults believed it and experienced these things together. So in my stories, I just take it just slightly over the edge of what I've experienced <laughs> into, into making it very physically real for everyone. Um, the reason I do that is because I want to manifest what I think everyone is sort of imagining and all of the sort of internal pain and internal, like just spectacular events that they're experiencing inside themselves. That's what the orbs are in the end. It's actually all of the pain that the people won't let be um, visible, making itself visible and actually freeing them because it's manifesting externally. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Chavisa Woods, author of the short story collection, Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country, and Other Stories. Another one of your stories that is very supernatural and uh, uh, definitely odd and not something you read every day was called A New Mohawk. Can you talk a little bit about that story and the creation of it? So A New Mohawk is about a man who wakes up one day to find the Gaza Strip on his head. And it's the day that he was supposed to go and get a haircut. He wanted a mohawk. Well, I guess when that story came to me, I I had been thinking a lot about um, the Weathermen Underground And I'd watched some of the old documentaries recently and about their phrase, bring the war home and why they decided to do the things that they decided to do because they felt that Americans were just sitting in their homes and helping to perpetuate violence by doing nothing, paying for the violence through their taxes. And this war was happening elsewhere, but we never actually had to experience it on our soil at the time. So they believed that the war should be brought home. And I was just, you know, I keep thinking about the ethics of that and whether they're right and whether they're wrong and whether they're both. And then um, there was a really huge barrage of bombings against um, Palestine by Israel, they said, because of rockets being shot into Israeli territory. But they always say that. So I never know exactly what's going on. I don't necessarily believe everything I hear on the news, but I do know when you start to see thousands of people being killed who are unarmed. It, it's absolutely catastrophic and it's devastating. And I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I had a dream that I woke up and I had the Gaza Strip on my head, actually. But my dream was very gory. And there was just sort of blood dripping down my face. And I was just kind of walking around in a daze. And then I looked at my nails and I saw Pol Pot's face under my nails. And he was sort of laughing at me. I thought about that dream for days. And then I just decided to write this story. Um of this actually happening to someone and what it would look like. And I tried to make it as realistic as possible. Um, I took a lot of the gore out of it. I think the story is actually weirdly funny, (laughs) I think, in many ways. I just wanted to think about what it would be like for someone to, for some, an American to have to experience something firsthand. And I also think it's a bit of a metaphor to have a war on your head. It's kind of like some on your mind, you know, something you're thinking about too much. This character's name is Sheldon. Sheldon has uh, is transgender, and Sheldon has been a man for a while in this story. In the hair, it's on the same time zone as Israel, and like these dead soldiers fall out, and he saves them. So it's so literal. Even though you were writing about something that is so devastating, 
was it fun at all to write this? Yeah, my dream wasn't fun, but when I wrote the story, it actually became it became really funny because I started to think of all the sensational ways that if there was someone walking around with this, it's a sci-fi story, but I guess it's magical realism because it doesn't really explain the science fiction element. But there's someone walking around with a animate um, miniature replica of like a section of the separation wall on their head and like little soldiers fighting on their head. <laughs> And everyone can see it and hear it and dust flies out sometimes and things explode. And it's very, you know, people find it very shocking and it's impolite, um, which I kind of found funny. Um, and then it gets kind of sad because people usually don't quite know how to react if like a dead person, a tiny dead person falls off their head. But I really liked thinking about this person going on Oprah and talking about like their personal experience of having the war on their head. Um so I did do a lot of play with like the individual identity and individual experience versus like the actual experiences of a much larger society. And in some ways, I guess I'm making fun of identity politics a little bit with that now that I think about it out loud. So in, in your stories are a lot of rural lesbians. <laughs> and I imagine already if you're different in these towns that you're writing about, it's difficult. And I felt like most of your rural lesbians were pretty unapologetic and able to be with other women. And I'm just wondering about your experience as that and writing about it. I was I was um, I think I'm going to say I think I was the first person, at least in you know, my whole generation to be out in my high school, at least in a decade, to be as open as I was. I came out when I was, what, 15 or 16. But it was hard because um, just no one had done it. And, you know, I knew like three other gay people in the area, but they were not out at all to anyone. <laughs> and two of them were adults. Um, it was hard. It was it was really weird. At one, you know, at one point I went to a Walmart two towns away from mine. I had a shaved head and I, you know, I dressed kind of I dressed goth and I was 16 and I was checking out at the Walmart and the checkout girl her mouth fell open and she stared at me and she said really loudly, "Are you that openly gay person from Sandoval?" <laughs> I was like, oh, "Jesus." And then everyone in the store stared at me and I thought, "Well, I'm not that open, you know." that people can just shout it at me when I'm miles away from my hometown. And that I didn't realize how big of a deal it was. I mean, I kind how big of a deal it was until that moment, really. I knew it was a big deal in my town, but I didn't realize everyone was talking about it behind my back to each other and to strangers. So that, that was bizarre. It wasn't easy. I mean, I got threatened with death. People, you know, someone threatened to kill me every day for the last year I was there um, in school. And I think he meant it. But I also had like a really solid group of friends, weirdly, like the marching band guys and I were like really tight knit and still are. <laughs> and they really didn't care that I was a lesbian. I don't think I would have been as close to them if I wasn't. It was hard. It was hard. But I also I also found ways to have a lot of fun there with like other weirdos in the area. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Chavisa Woods author of the short story collection, Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country, and other stories. One of the stories called Take the Way Home that leads back to Sullivan Street, which is also a lyric from a song. This story has so much going on from 
sort of a new lesbian relationship to <laughs> rural Mensa folks to mental health and drugs. Talk about the genesis of that story, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, cool. That's actually the story um, that I have selected to read from later today. Um, the genesis of that story was just, I mean, it was so many things. I wanted to talk about raver culture in the 90s, because I think that that's just a really, like, that's just a really rich um, sort of moment in time and weird and kind of kind of trashy, kind of funny. Um, and I wanted to talk about, you know, I want, kind of wanted to pair this kind of cool kid culture that was happening at the time with, um, with these very dorky, elite, rich intellectuals. I like to put people together who shouldn't be together and see what they do. And maybe that's because of my upbringing <laughs> and where I come from. I find it very interesting when people who don't seem like they could get along or could really have a relationship interact. Um, so that, that story is a lot about combustion. It's putting a lot of different things together that are highly combustible at any moment. And it's also, you know, it also really highlights some of the amazing characters that are members of Mensa, some of whom and amalgamations of whom I have known in real life. And they are very eccentric, weird individuals, and they're quite hilarious to sit around and talk to. So you have this sort of vegetarian Buddhist narrator. So the narrator has experience being with other women. And Callie, her her girlfriend, her new girlfriend, whose parents are the rural Mensa folks, is new to this. But she also has some serious mental health issues. This story is set primarily in St. Louis. Callie in this story um, is schizophrenic and is kind of in denial about it. Um, what I really wanted to play with in this story was what is insanity? And I think that's the question the story asks. Because when their girls are tripping together, Kali feels not very different than usual. And the narrator is tripping on acid and is in an altered state. But somehow, with that experience, can now see the same things that her schizophrenic girlfriend usually sees. And in that way, I think the story starts to get really scary. And it starts to make the narrator question what insanity really is. Because we are always thinking of insanity as someone seeing something that's not there. But when the narrator is tripping, she starts to wonder, is insanity maybe some people who can see more than we can? Well, they often, you know, you hear that stereotype that really, really intelligent people are also a little bit crazy. And so you have your Mensa <laughs> people and they're pressuring poor Kali to take a Mensa test. But this, you know, the narrator and her experience on acid and having visions and feeling like she can see what Kali sees, which of course we can never really know if we're seeing what someone else feels because ultimately we're alone. But it was such a moment, almost like this enlightened moment in the story, like a turn in the story. It was very magnetic. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about writing that. So that's the story. You asked me to pick something, I think, that took me a really long time to write. And this is a story. It's like a funny story. That's probably the most humorous story in the book. But this is a story that took me, I think I wrote it and rewrote it over the course of nine years. Because I just couldn't get it right. And the big problem that it was giving me was writing an acid trip without it sounding too much like a dream sequence that you would just sort of space out of. And I realized that in order to write about the acid trip, I really needed to focus more on interactions than on what was going on inside someone's head all the time. 
um, so sort of to show what was happening with them through their interactions with other people. And when I wrote about um, the narrator seeing the same thing as Kali for the first time, her girlfriend, I, I really hoped that I was able to get that kind of like your hair stands on in moment that maybe people have had if they were tripping or if they did see a ghost together where it's like, if you're seeing something on your own, it can just be a hallucination or it can be, you know, something dreamlike or you got, got it wrong. But as soon as there's another person who sees it with you, it makes it more real. And that's, I really wanted to capture that feeling of like, this is, you know, we can't argue any, the narrator can't argue anymore that this is just in her head or in her girlfriend's head. Something greater is happening. And that might just be the drug because I mean, people do sometimes hallucinate together and it might be them coming together like a meeting of the minds, but it also might be real. And that's what's sort of scary. So I wanted to really, I wanted to make the reader feel that shock with the, with the narrator. And what about the title? The title is the title of a Counting Crows song that's kind of a love song, but it's also really creepy. And I thought it was a good metaphor for the relationship between these two characters. The narrator is even singing it at the end, Take the Way Home, that leaves back to Sullivan Street in her car. And she's um, reminiscing that this, she always thought of this as their song. And she always thought of it as a sweet song, but she hadn't listened to the lyrics before. And she thinks it's a little messed up in retrospect, that a song that includes the lines where all the bodies hang on the air would represent her romantic relationship. It's a little eerie, I guess. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Chavisa Woods, author of the short story collection, Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country, and Other Stories. Can you read something from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So I've actually selected excerpts from Richard Brodigan. He's someone I've been sort of addicted to. And for, I think, two years, I read almost only him. I just went through and read everything he wrote over and over. This is going to seem a little strange to you, but this first section that I'm reading is from a Confederate general at Big Sur. And this segment that I'm reading is what really, when I read it years ago, um, it sort of spurred my ideas about how I was going to write magical realism. And what's really strange is this, this story is complete realism. This line, these lines that I'm going to read have nothing to do with magical realism at all, but I'll explain it a little bit after I um, share this with you. So this is from a Confederate general at Big Sur, and he's talking about it. He's sort of describing the history of Big Sur. I've heard that the population of Big Sur in those Civil War days was mostly just some Digger Indians. I've heard that the Digger Indians down there didn't wear any clothes. They didn't have any fire or shelter or culture. They didn't grow anything. They didn't hunt and they didn't fish. They didn't bury their dead or give birth to their children. They lived on roots and limpets and sat pleasantly out in the rain. I can imagine the expression on General Robert E. Lee's face when this gang showed up bearing strange gifts from the Pacific Ocean. So I'm just going to stop there. Um, I think it's really interesting what he did there. He started with something that people say about the Indians, which is a bit of absurd and racist, that they didn't have any, they didn't wear any clothes, that they didn't have any fire or shelter or culture, Right. So that's just a little bit absurd and a little bit racist. But then he just keeps extending it to this realm of 
impossibility to say that they didn't bury their dead or give birth to their children is, of course, impossible. And this line is very playful. He's kind of making fun of what is said of the Digger Indians. Um, like, it's obviously absurd. But I think you'll see what he did in that little paragraph is often what I do with the larger plot of my magical realism stories, which is sort of taking this idea and then extending it into impossible, which I sort of make a reality, if that makes sense. Can you read something that you wrote that was maybe tricky or hard or something that changed a lot for the first, from the first draft? And it sounds like you talked a little bit about which story. So I'm going to read an excerpt of the story we were just speaking of, which is um, Take the Way Home that leads back to Sullivan Street. This is something that I wrote and rewrote over the course of nine years. And I think that I finally got it to the place that I want it. Um, it begins with a quotation that is also a word that is almost impossible to pronounce. It takes up the whole length of the page, and it's the word for a, a really difficult to pronounce medication. It's Zyprexolanzapin dis with fluxetine symbaxathan. She pronounced this word with familiar ease. This drug was re recalled from the pharmaceutical market, but I still have a renewable prescription. The doctor said it works best for me, regardless of the side effects, she said. Why are smart people always so fucking crazy? Or maybe it's not that smart people are crazy. It's just that crazy people present themselves as being super smart. She did. She clung to the notion of her genius like her life depended on it. But you know, if I pull it apart... Nothing she ever said was really that smart. Geniuses are always considered a little crazy by their generations, she told me. She told me that she had a photographic memory. Then she recited the names of the presidents in alphabetical order, then in the order of their presidencies. Then she did the same with the names of philosophers from Aristotle to Zizek. But that's not really genius, is it? That's just memorizing needless shit, which I now know she probably does, to keep herself from picking her toenails down till they bleed or shaving all of the hair off of her entire body for the third time in one day. She told me she can feel it growing. She told me she was terrified of worms and that at night she had dreams that copper worms were eating their way through her skin. That's why, Kali said, she could never make it through Dune because of the sandworms. I said that probably wasn't the only reason. Kali told me she could talk to turtles and smell architecture. She tried to make me register libertarian. She told me that she had a feeling about me. The first time we made love, she told me that a blinking red light named Algonon had been visiting her in the night. Algonon blinked to her from the upper corners of the bedroom as means of communication. Algonon said that I should move in with her. When we moved in together, she told me two things. One, she told me there was a headless woman in our kitchen who paced back and forth, swinging her own head by its hair, which she always sees in kitchens, but only ever in kitchens. And two, she told me she didn't want to take her medication anymore because she didn't need it. I probably just needed to come out as a lesbian, she told me. Denying that big a part of yourself can cause serious problems, she told me. And do you want to share a little bit more about this exact challenge? I, I've sort of talked about it before. This story just kept sort of morphing and remorphing. So talking about mental health issues and someone's sort of psychosis and then talking about the trip 
sort of posed the same problem for me. I felt like I was writing too much inside of her head and in a dreamscape. And it, and I wasn't kind of getting the humor that I wanted to be present, even though it's sort of a dark humor. But when I started sort of writing from the outsider's perspective, when I'm talking about mental health issues and when I'm talking about the trip and sort of an interaction, then I thought it became a little bit lighter. It became more funny and most importantly, became more real and tangible to the reader. Um, and that took me nine years to get it where I wanted it, but now I'm happy with that story. And that's, um, take the way home that leads back to Sullivan street. Where do you write? I write mostly at a desk in, um, my, uh, my spare bedroom with my bird behind me. And occasionally if I'm giving myself a treat, I'll go sit at a cafe and write because I oft I do like to write with some noise around me. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't consciously do anything to get away from writing. But I used to smoke while I was writing when I needed to think about something. Although now I'm quitting, so I have to find something else to do. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show my work first to my partner. Um, right now that's Becca. And also to my um, one of my best friends, Joseph Keckler. And sometimes to my mentor, Steve Cannon. But I have to read it to him because he's blind. How have you dealt with rejection? It's difficult, but I think the most important thing for a very young writer um, to realize is when they're getting rejected, it might mean the work isn't ready yet. So I would say I dealt with it by being very educated about who's rejecting me and why and being able to sometimes admit that maybe the work's not ready yet if it's rejected. And what is your favorite word? (laughs) My favorite word has always been stuff. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Chavisa Woods, author of Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country and Other Stories. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.